Welcome to the Legal One podcast. Legal One is pleased to partner with the Education Law Center to offer this podcast series focused on the ongoing fight for educational equity in the state of New Jersey for all New Jersey children, regardless of race, ethnicity, or income level. This series will examine how far New Jersey has come in the past half century, largely as a result of the groundbreaking Abbott v. Burke litigation, where we are today, and the emerging challenges and opportunities that lie ahead. In this series, listeners will hear directly from legal experts, policymakers, school leaders, and advocates who were personally instrumental in the fight for equity and how they have overcome significant obstacles every step of the way. Each episode features David Chiara, Executive Director of the Education Law Center, interviewing one or more key stakeholders in the fight for equity. We hope that this series will both inform and inspire, and that listeners will take up the call to do their part in this critical and ongoing effort. So let's get started, and thank you so much for joining us for the Legal One podcast. In this episode, we're pleased to have former Rutgers Law School professor and founder of the Education Law Center, Paul Trachtenberg, who was truly a pioneer in New Jersey and nationally. Professor Trachtenberg will discuss the incredible disparities in educational quality that existed and were widely accepted a half century ago before New Jersey's groundbreaking Abbott v. Burke litigation and the steps taken in the 1970s and 80s that set the stage for the many legal successes that followed. Uh, I want to welcome everybody to, uh, this is the inaugural episode of our 11-part series of exploring the right to a thorough and efficient education in New Jersey all the history of our jurisprudence, the rulings, the interpretations, the fallout of what is a robust legal framework for the provision of education for children in New attending New Jersey's public schools. And I'm so pleased to have this inaugural episode with my good friend and longtime colleague and the Dean of School Finance in New Jersey, Paul Trachtenberg, uh, to welcome Paul to this podcast. Paul is going to start us off. I should mention that Paul was a longtime professor of law at Rutgers University, uh, teaching in these matters at the law school, and also was the founder of the organization that I lead, Education Law Center, back in 1973, when he was able to secure a grant from the Ford Foundation and uh, use that grant to actually set up an organization, which is now Education Law Center. So it's a real thrill to have Paul with us. Welcome, Paul. Thank you, David. I'm I'm delighted to be here. I'm delighted to uh, continue to admire what you and others at ELC have been able to accomplish in all these years and to think with amazement at the fact that we're approaching a 50th anniversary. I don't know whether there's a big celebration planned, but I hope there will be. We're starting to work on it, Paul, and you will be involved. Um, also, before we get started, I want to thank David Nash and the Principals and Supervisors Association for their gracious hosting of this and support of this on Legal One. So thanks to David and the staff at Principals and Supervisors for making this happen. So Paul, we want to get right into it. And this is our first episode, and we want to do a little historical review. I do know that the problems of education funding and public education finance in New Jersey really date back into the 50s and probably even before then. But in the modern era, there was activity in the 50s and 60s around these issues. But I think I want to start with the first major lawsuit that went before the Supreme Court that really, I think, laid the groundwork for the modern interpretation and modern meaning the current interpretation 
and the evolution of that interpretation of the thorough and efficient clause by our Supreme Court and the principles that were established by the court in, in those rulings. And I want to start with Robinson versus Cahill, which is a landmark series of decisions in the 70s on inadequacies, inequities in education funding in New Jersey. And Paul, you were part of that. You were engaged in that effort in a very deep way. So I want to start out with Robinson. And let's start with the issues that in the complaint and the problems that the case with with education funding, inequity, disparity, whatever you want to call it, lack of funding, lack of resources in those days, what was the sort of landscape and concerns and issues that the plaintiffs in the Robinson case brought to the court? And if you can, along the way, talk to us about who the plaintiffs were and who the defendants were and how the case kind of got up to the Supreme Court. Okay, glad to do it, David. Uh, I'm going to take a, a bit of a running start at this issue because I don't think you can appreciate Robinson, certainly as it developed, without going back a bit in, in history and, and in a way almost 100 years because uh, the education clause of the New Jersey Constitution, which became central to Robinson and obviously central to Abbott in all the years of that litigation, was enacted in 1875. It didn't really have much of a interpretation in the courts. There was a late 1890s decision, which looked at the advantages, ironically, that urban districts had over outlying, probably not even considered suburban, more rural and outlying districts, because the urban districts were able to provide free public high school for their students, and the other outlying districts were not. And those districts challenged what was going on under the thorough and efficient education clause, saying we're not getting equal treatment. The urban districts have it all over us. So my, how things change when you get to Robinson and Abbott, when it was the, the poor urban districts complaining bitterly about how disadvantaged they were relative to the wealthier suburban districts. But there was very little law about uh, equal educational opportunity, school funding, until the Robinson case. That case was originally brought by a young Jersey City attorney, Harold Ruvalt, on behalf of Jersey City students. And there are many who thought it was really a, a case brought by Jersey City to try to get more state revenues into the city. But be that as it may, Harold had this idea, uh, really an ingenious idea, based on a case that had been filed in California, Serrano against Freese, to challenge school funding because of inequalities and the resultant differences in, in educational opportunities. So Harold was representing Jersey City students. He filed the case, kind of sat on the back burner until the California Supreme Court rendered a decision in 1971 in the Serrano case, and suddenly it became front page, front burner news. I had joined the law faculty in 1970, and about the first thing I got involved in, because I knew I wanted to be involved in educational advocacy was what turned into our connection with the Robinson case. And we represented the um, 
the NAACP Education Committee in Newark and the ACLU of New Jersey as friends of the court, amici curiae, as we say in the legal Latin. And we got heavily involved in the case early on as it was just starting to flower. Now, the charge uh, that Harold Rubel leveled and that we supported was that students in districts like Jersey City were simply not getting enough money to provide for their education because the state funding formula had limited state aid and relied heavily on local property wealth. And the wealthier your district was in terms of property resources, the more money you could raise, the less wealthy your district, the less money you could raise. Just to give you an idea, the state share of school funding at the time was about 28%. The local share was about two-thirds, 67%. And the small balance was federal and other assorted aid. So if you were in a district that had limited local resources or what came to be known as municipal overburden, the extra costs particularly cities had in providing other services than education, the less money you had for the schools. This came up in a context where the school funding law was a 1954 law that was based on what was called a minimum foundation program. In other words, up to that minimum foundation level, the state would share in the costs with the local community. The minimum foundation level at the time the Robinson case was filed was $400 a student. It's hard to imagine that in relationship to the 20,000 or more that's now spent per student, but it was 400. However, the key fact was that the average spending per student in the state at the time was more than $800. So anything above the 400 was totally the responsibility of the local district. And, and so the burdens were on the local taxpayers and on local tax resources. And again, the inequality entered because some districts with a tiny tax rate could raise enormous amounts of money. And others, particularly the poor urban districts with a high tax rate, much higher tax rate, could raise only a pittance, a, a small amount. And so the expenditure levels were on a multiple of probably three or four. That is, wealthy suburban districts were spending three or four times as much on the education of their students as the urban districts. And when you add to that, that the urban districts tended to have students with much greater educational needs, you had a really foul brew there. You had a situation that was unacceptable. And that was at the core of what the argument was in the Robinson case. The trial judge in that case, Ted Botter, took it very seriously, educated himself about the nuances of school funding and education, and issued an opinion which found that the school funding law, and incidentally, there was a shift. The legislature adopted a new funding law called the State School Incentive Equalization Aid Law that was designed to head off some of the big problems in the old minimum foundation law. But Ted Botter decided nonetheless 
it did not satisfy the requirements of state and local equal protection of the laws. On the issue of the education clause, which was in the case, he said, you know, I think the new law, when it became fully funded, which was some years ahead, might provide adequate money to meet the the education clause, the T&E so-called requirement, but clearly there's a violation of equal protection. The case gets appealed to the New Jersey Supreme Court, and the court agreed with Ted Botter, the trial judge, only really on one thing, which was the school funding law in New Jersey was still unconstitutional, but it, it flipped the legal theories. It found that the unconstitutionality was in terms of the thorough and efficient education clause, and that neither the federal equal protection clause nor the state clause was something it was prepared to use. In the case of the federal clause, the first decision in Robinson by the state Supreme Court was in April 1973, a few days after the U.S. Supreme Court decided the Texas case, San Antonio against Rodriguez, another school funding case litigated on the federal equal protection clause. And the U.S. Supreme Court in a 5-4 vote ruled that the statute would be constitutional. Why? Because of the importance of local control and home rule of education, a theme not exactly alien to what New Jerseyans know about how the state views home rule and local control. So the state Supreme Court rendered a decision a few days later and said, look, as to the federal clause, we don't quite agree with how the court came out, but that's the law of the country. We can't do that. State equal protection, we're not prepared to turn this case on that because we're not sure we could stop it with education. It might implicate local government generally and who knows what dislocations it would produce. So the court, in effect, in my view, converted the T&E clause, the education clause, into a kind of special purpose equal protection clause limited to education and said, clearly what's going on here can't meet any kind of standard of equality of treatment of students. We have students who are getting a pittance on their education, students who are getting a fortune, and it has no relation to their needs and circumstances. So we're going to strike it down and we're going to require the legislature to revisit this whole issue and come up with something better. Well, before we get to the remedy, let's explore the court's ruling a little bit more. So just for the audience, we should have said this right from the get-go. Paul has been referencing that the court grounded its decision on a violation of the education clause, not the equal protection clause of the New Jersey Constitution, a clause that, as Paul points out, was adopted in 1875, the language. And just so everyone knows, that language is pretty simple. It's one sentence. It says, the legislature shall provide for the maintenance and support of a thorough and efficient system of free public schools for the instruction of all school children in the state from the ages of five to 18. Paul, when the court said that this funding law, that you've described the disparities and the evidence that was before the court of these tremendous differences in the levels of education funding between urban districts and more affluent districts in the state, 
And the court finding that that formula by allowing those vast differences violated the Therrin Efficient Clause. What did it say about that? What was the sort of core of why this funding scheme violated the requirement for the maintenance and support of a thorough and efficient system of free public schools? Well, I, I, let, me, let me give you a little bit of interesting history about that, because to some extent, here we are in 1971-72, litigating the education clause almost 100 years after it was added to the Constitution. But it was very much like uh, writing on a clean slate because there was very limited litigation or legislation to give content to what that meant. And I was working at the law school with a team of law students on the brief which we submitted to the New Jersey Supreme Court. And we were going back and forth over, well, what does thorough and efficient education mean? We don't really have many guideposts to uh, anchor our argument. And we had one pivotal meeting when we were trying to finalize the portion of our brief arguing how high a quality of education that required. And one of my students, uh, uh, now a well-known name in public interest law, Donna Lieberman, who's been the longtime head of the New York Civil Liberties Union, Donna came into this meeting as one of the team of students carrying a huge Webster's Dictionary. This is long prior to Google or online research. So she laid this, slammed this thing down on the table because we had a fairly heated argument about how we should formulate our brief to make the argument to the New Jersey Supreme Court about what meaning it should ascribe to thorough and efficient education. And she said something like the following. She said, well, you guys referring to the faculty at the law school, have always taught us that when we try to give meaning to words, a statute, a contract, a constitutional provision, we should start with the plain meaning of the word. And she flipped open this monstrous dictionary to the definition of thorough. And she said, thorough means complete with attention to every detail. Therefore, our argument in the brief should be thorough and efficient education under the New Jersey constitution means the best possible education. And we wound up making that argument. We elaborated on her theory, but at bottom, it was about the plain meaning of those words. There, there's a little bit of history surrounding the adoption of the Thorough and Efficient Education Clause, which we found supported that view. In the debates about the clause, there was an alternative formulation put forward to Thorough and Efficient. It was more or less the following, that, that the Constitution would provide that there should be a rudimentary form of instruction offered to students not fit to equip them for higher education. And that was rejected, and instead of it, thorough and efficient became the language of the Constitution. And we argued not only the dictionary definition, but that bit of history suggests that the framers of the Constitution intended to aspire to a high level of excellence in the education they provided all students. And I think actually we never quite got the court to accept that in Robinson, but I think we came very close in Abbott where you know the remedies provided and the language the court used suggested that thorough and efficient actually meant a very high level of education. 
well beyond, you know, educational adequacy or rudimentary education. So that was kind of the fighting issue in the court. What is thorough and efficient education if that becomes the basis of the decision? What does it require of the state? And what kind of funding is necessary to provide students with an opportunity to achieve that level of education? And what did they say about what thorough and efficient means? What's this, did they, they articulate any kind of standard against that could be used going forward by legislators and so forth? Well, I, I think what the suggestion was that the state had to stand behind and be a partner in the funding of education that would equip students to become good citizens and competitors in the labor market. So it was a kind of external standard that they used. They didn't say, well, they have to have this score on the SAT or this score on the state assessment test. What they said is, you need to look beyond the schooling and look at what they will be able to do. They need to be effective citizens and competitors in the contemporary labor market. And that, I think, became an important theme. Now, in fairness, Chief Justice Weintraub, who authored that opinion in 1973, did suggest that thorough and efficient, contrary to our argument, didn't necessarily mean the best possible education, but it meant a high quality of education designed to equip people to function well after school. And how high a quality obviously became a major issue in Abbott. The court in Robinson also didn't have any kind of definition of their own efficient education articulated either by the legislature or by the state education department, a gap that was eventually filled in the Abbott case. So just to remind everyone, when Robinson was considered, this was before standards-based education came into play, which was in the late 1990s, not until the late 1990s, early 2000 period, did we have a the state actually prescribing by statute and by regulation and directives, substantive curriculum content standards and a state assessments. That didn't come until almost 20 years later. So the court was really, I think to your point, the court was operating without any the legislature actually taking any steps to define what the substantive education should be. But what the court did do is to set out, I think, for the first time that, that core definition of what a thorough and efficient education means, which is an education that will equip all students, not just some, but all students, for citizenship, for participation in their communities, civic life, and importantly, to be competitors in the labor market. So would you agree with me, Paul, that, that, that that's sort of a seminal principle that was has guided the court, I think, all the way to, you know, through Abbott and to this day, that kind of core definition of what a thorough and efficient education must achieve for all students or do for all students was first articulated in the Robinson decision as part of its ruling of that the funding formula was unconstitutional. I think that's absolutely right. The court also established in very strong terms, I mean, the, the Weintraub opinion in, uh, in 1973 was a masterpiece of clear language and articulation of core principles. So one was certainly that standard of achievement that it was looking beyond school at citizenship and competition in the labor market. But there were a couple of other things important. One, 
the court was well aware that not all students were equally programmed or even equipped by external circumstances to excel in school. And it began to recognize that students who had disadvantages, had limitations, whether they were socioeconomic or otherwise, really had to be attended to and given an opportunity and maybe special funding to make that opportunity real. The third thing that the court did, and, and in very strong language, was to make it absolutely explicit that ultimate responsibility for the achievement of thorough and efficient education was on the state. Because remember, the history of how public education developed was sort of to the contrary. I mean, the first schools in New Jersey were private, as they were in much of the country. The first public schools in New Jersey of a sort, publicly supported, were ironically called pauper schools. They were schools that particular communities, not a state system, particular communities established for kids whose parents couldn't afford to privately educate their children. And it was some period of time before we had anything at all looking like the kind of the contemporary public education system, a statewide system of public schools in every community supported at least in part by state dollars. But again, let me emphasize that at the time Robinson was filed, the state share was barely over 25% of the total that was spent on the public schools. So they were public, but public men heavily locally generated money. And with the local generation of money came all these problems of inequality as district got wealthier or poorer, as the needs of their students shifted dramatically. But I think the court in unmistakable language, at least three times in a brief opinion, came down hard on how ultimately it was the state responsibility to assure the kids got their own efficient education. The court at one point said, the state can call upon local districts to participate in this effort, both in terms of operating schools and in providing some of the funding. But if the local district can't do what's necessary to, for its kids to achieve thorough and efficient education, the state has to insist they do something more or different. And ultimately, if the local district can't do it, the state will have to do it itself, which was kind of a forerunner to what became state statutes that permitted state takeover of districts. But the court was prescient in saying, ultimate responsibilities on the state, the state will basically have to do anything required to ensure that kids get their own efficient education, up to and including actually taking over the operation of the schools itself. I just want to recap these three principles because they, as we go along in this series, they are going to be the subject of further elucidation, interpretation, evolution by the court and by the legislature around the whole definition of a thorough and efficient education. So the first was this court's, and, and these were really go back to Robinson. I can't emphasize that enough, right? So the first is this definition of what thorough and efficient education means. It's not minimal. It's not rudimentary, whatever term you want to call it. It's an education that will prepare children for two things, for citizenship and participation in civic life and for participation in a competitive labor force. 
The second point you make is the beginnings of the recognition that children from low-income backgrounds and other disadvantaged backgrounds may need additional help. And the third is this notion, core notion, that the state is ultimately responsible, not local school districts, but it's a state system. And at the end of this day, the state has to make sure that the local districts have what they need to provide an education. So that actually, just as a side, that really contrasted with, you mentioned the California decision in Serrano versus Priest. That was actually in sharp contrast to how the California Supreme Court came out in that case, wasn't it? Absolutely. And, and uh, Jack Coons, who was one of the key people in the California case, uh, a law professor at Berkeley, and I used to go round and round on the T&E, the Education Clause Theory versus Equal Protection, because the California Supreme Court in the course of the Serrano litigation actually at one point said that equal protection would be satisfied if all students got no education, no public education at all, or a totally inadequate public education, as long as it was equal. And I said, well, Jack, that so you're not even providing a half a loaf, we're providing a full loaf. You're not providing anything, equality, but equality to what degree and at what level. So yes, there's a big difference between something anchored in a clause that has its own substantive content versus something that's kind of neutral and says, well, it's gotta be equal, whatever that means. Equal to what, we don't have to get into. I should just mention to our audience that's still the law in California today. There was a, a couple of cases that just went up a couple of years ago to the California Supreme Court asking them to kind of follow the New Jersey way, if you will, the, uh, the Robinson Abbott way of building in quality of education, adequacy of education, a substantive standard of education. And the court said, no, they weren't going to still weren't going to do that. So <laughs> it's a tale of two states, I guess. You, one, one could, and I know you've written about the differences between California. Oh, I have, I have. But David, let me jump in on what I think is an important or two further dimensions of Robinson and what it sort of foretells for us currently and to some extent predicts for the life cycle of the Abbott litigation. One has to do with the remedy. So we get a, a, a great decision from the court saying, Yes, students are being denied their right to a thorough and efficient education. The question is, what do you do about it? And as has happened periodically in Abbott, the court in Robinson wanted to honor, to the extent it could, separation of powers, the notion that it's not the entire government, it's just one branch. And the main responsibility for education is in the other branches. In fact, I want to come back to a basic. You read out the one sentence of the Thorough and Efficient Education Clause, and it starts with the legislature shall provide for the maintenance and support of a thorough and efficient system of free public schools. The Education Clause provision actually is in the finance article of the state constitution which foretold that from the start that you couldn't deal with education in New Jersey without dealing with the funding of it. Because here's the constitution saying, the legislature shall provide for the maintenance and support of a thorough and efficient system of free public education in the finance article. So obviously the remedy that the court had to look to in Robinson 
was a financial remedy. And as you pointed out, because we didn't have all of the educational developments that came years after Robinson, that was the main game in town. We, we couldn't get into the details of curriculum and instruction. So it was a, primarily about funding. But the court is not willing to kind of bull ahead and, and insist that the legislature do particular things. So it kind of deferred to the legislature to cure the problem. The legislature being the legislature or New Jersey being New Jersey, the legislature didn't act. Finally, in 1975, it adopted a new law. And in the fifth of the Robinson decisions, the court found that that new law was facially constitutional. That is, it hadn't gone into effect, so nobody knew how it was actually going to work. And there were lots of criticisms by the plaintiffs and, and various friends of the court to what the legislature came up with. And the court, in a really fractured opinion, wound up approving it, but said, and this is a theme that resonates with Abbott, says, but of course, it can't be constitutional unless it's fully funded. So we have a statute of questionable validity because a lot of the justices said, well, you know, we kind of have to sign off on it, but we don't really like it. And we think the plaintiffs and the friends of the court who are criticizing it may well be proven to be right, which they were, of course, in at the beginning of the Abbott litigation, which was the challenge to that statute as, as applied, not on its face. But the court said in Robinson, the decision that found it facially constitutional, of course, it goes without saying it's got to be fully funded. The legislature adopts a statute, passes barely, but passes muster. You'd think they'd run to get it funded. They don't appropriate money for it at all, which led to the court ordering that the public schools all be shut down until the legislature came up with money to fund its own statute. And that's what led to the first and still only New Jersey state income tax which became the vehicle for the legislature to fund its school funding law. But the problems of getting a statute, you know, we've had in the history of contemporary history of school funding since 1954, there have been six statutes, school funding laws enacted. One was withdrawn by the legislature, three were struck down by the court, and two were found facially constitutional. The one that ended Robinson in 1975 and the School Funding Reform Act, now currently still in effect in New Jersey. Both were found facially constitutional. In both cases, the court insisted that full funding was an absolute requirement for constitutionality. And Robinson, it led to this huge brouhaha around a state income tax. And in Abbott, currently, School Funding Reform Act is, what, 10 years old now? It's been fully funded once in the first year of its operation and not since. So follow through by the legislature, appropriation of adequate funding for school funding laws, even when the school funding laws, as they occasionally do, pass muster as facially constitutional, 
it's still a huge problem of actually seeing to it that the money gets into the schools and the classrooms. Well, we're gonna we're gonna cover the Abbott saga later on in this series, but I'm glad you brought that up. But I wanna there was a bit of a leap there that you made, Paul, that I think is important to explore a bit, and it gets to the issue of separation of the role of the branches, if you will, the interplay of the judiciary with the executive and legislative branches, the elected branches of government. I mean, you talked about the initial decisions in Robinson. There's obviously the decision finding that it's unconstitutional, and then, as you called it, deferring to the legislature, kind of telling the legislature without a lot of direction, go ahead and fix this. And then you describe the last decision, because there was a little bit of back and forth, which I'd like you to talk about, but you talk about the last decision where the court actually put its foot down and ordered the schools closed because the, the law that they passed wasn't funded, although I should mention they ordered the schools closed when the schools were closed for the summer. Right. And the, and the income yeah, tax they, was passed. They, they, so they weren't opened. that foolhardy to, uh, to say, oh, we're, we're going to close it in, uh, in mid-school yeah. year. Uh, right. So no, no, no students had to, had, to be, had to leave their schools as a result of this. But, but still, that's a, a heavy, heavy order to actually close the system down until the funding formula is fully funded. So how did they get from this deferential first take at a remedy, hey, legislature, you go and fix this, to then putting its foot down and saying, if you don't appropriate sufficient funding, which is your responsibility under the Constitution, we're going to actually issue an order that, in effect, shuts this whole system down until, until that's done. Well, there really were two, sta two steps or stages. That is, um, it took about two years after the court's 1973 decision striking down the Bateman-Tansman Act, the existing school funding law, until the legislature adopted a statute, which then the court found marginally constitutional. And then the legislature took another long period of time, I think it was not as long, maybe eight months, when it failed to appropriate any funding. So during that second stage, when the legislature had adopted a, a statute the Public School Education Act of 1975, and the court said, well, we'll give it a pass, we'll let it go into effect. But the legislature had not appropriated money. In that interim, the, the post-endorsement of the facial constitutionality to the funding, the court was really beside itself as to what it could do. I mean, the plaintiffs and, and friends of the court were besieging the court, you got to do something. You can't just leave it to the legislature. They took two years to adopt a statute. Now they're not even willing to fund their own statute. So the the court did something in, in Robinson that I think may have been unprecedented. It actually convened an oral argument of several hours duration in which it asked the parties and the friends of the court to appear and to help the court to understand what power it had to order its own remedy. And there were justices who were prepared to say, we need to do whatever is necessary. And one of the options they talked about was creating some kind of a regional school funding mechanism that would go a long way toward equalizing resources, but still permit the property tax to be used to generate funding for education. But 
but it was a wild couple of hour argument in which the court was open to hear any ideas and to be instructed or, or advised about what power it had to implement a remedy. So it eventually, in, in a way, what it eventually came up with, hard as it is to imagine, was not nearly the most radical of the proposals that was made to it about what it could do to actually keep the schools open, to equalize the funding, and to let the legislature kind of pick it up afterwards. So it was a wild time in which the court was being pushed to think what the outer limits were of its authority to impose a remedy. You know, its preference all along is to defer, 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 give the full opportunity to the other branches to carry out the constitutional obligations. But ultimately, the court, if pushed hard enough by circumstances, may do some things that are way beyond the kind of comfort zone of the court. Let me ask you about that, because I think that that looms large in the Abbott saga that we're going to go through here and is an important, it also is an important sort of constitutional principle under the Theron Fishing Clause, which is the power of the judiciary to enforce its rulings under the T&E Clause in the face of consistent resistance, if you will, by the other branches. What did the court have to say about that? And, 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 I, and I say that with reference to kind of throw it out. I'd like you to comment on this, Paul. The court has a, a wonderful phrase in Robinson that it uses in terms of its power as a co-equal branch to enforce its decrees in this area when it talks about the court being the last resort guarantor. That's the key phrase that the court used in Robinson, the last resort guarantor of the you know, fundamental right, the core right, if you will, of a thorough and efficient education for children in New Jersey's public schools. Talk about that a bit more, because that seems to me a very sort of foundational principle about the role of the judiciary in enforcing its orders in the face of legislative resistance. Yeah, no, that, that phrase uh, loomed large in, in my head as well, and I've used it many times since, because I think it's an important indication that if pushed hard enough and if left with a view that unless it acts aggressively, the constitutional rights of kids are not going to be honored, the court will bite the bullet and do it. Now, for example, uh, one of the justices who dissented from the courts closing down the schools dissented not because he thought that was too extreme, but in a way because he thought it wasn't extreme enough. That is, he said, how can we enforce the right to education by closing the schools? What we ought to do is ensure that the schools operate as the Constitution requires them to operate. So if we need to do whatever we need to do to make sure there's adequate and equalized funding available, we should do that. And we shouldn't just you know, provide a negative remedy. That is an injunction against the schools being open until the legislature fixes it. So uh, yes, the, you know, if pushed to the extreme, the court can and will do that. Now, ultimately, the question is, does it pay a political price? Does it reduce or, in some people's views, aggrandize the court's reputation? 
I mean, if the court were seen as a paper tiger, you know, some, you know, it says what the law is and what's required, but it doesn't really do anything to enforce it. Then why should we pay attention to it? Let me explore that a little bit more because I think you're running up against something that is a dynamic that we're going to see throughout this series and throughout the courts grappling with the thorough and efficient clause, not just in Robinson, but in the Abbott uh, line, which is that the decision to order the schools closed still seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, respect the, uh, let's put it this way, that the court was unwilling to cross the line of ordering appropriations that under the Constitution, the power of appropriations, the power to raise and spend money out of the Treasury, the state Treasury, vests with the legislature. And it seems to me that it was, and I guess it's a question, was this part of the court sort of coming to terms with what to do, which was that they wanted to put pressure on the legislature to act without actually ordering the legislature to come up with a sum of money, which would be seen as encroaching upon the sole powers of the legislature over the appropriations of money. Yeah, I, do, I don't think in the arguments about remedy, uh, anybody really pursued the notion that the court itself could order the appropriation of money. I think the direction of some of the suggestions was once the money's appropriated, to what extent can the court, in effect, order it be reallocated? That is, if it's appropriated for a non-constitutionally required purpose, could the court intervene and say, no, no, that money's got to be used to satisfy a constitutional right. And I think on that, the court may have been persuadable, not, not going all the way and saying the court by itself can take over the legislative function of appropriating money. But once money is appropriated, could the court order the redirection of it? Still an intrusion of right. a substantial sort on the legislative prerogative, but it's, it's not going the ultimate step of saying, we don't need you to appropriate money, we'll do it. Thank you. But that would have required the court to get into the, the legislative powers over the budget itself and have, and have to kind of rearrange the budget right. and decide that funding of public education was so fundamental that it, that it superseded all other functions of state government and they could move money around the state budget. I, it sounds like they were unwilling to go that step too. Well, uh, some justices were. The, the justice who descended from, you know, closing down the schools said, well, we should have gone this other route. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, but, but I think, look, all of that is at the outer edges of what is even possible for a court to do in an extreme situation. We don't get to that extreme situation if we can avoid it. David, the other thing I want to mention is that there was another through line, which I noticed. I went back and reread some of the, uh, the Robinson opinions. And what I noticed was that the state's defenses in Robinson are eerily similar to the defenses the state is still making today in litigation filed against it in Jersey City and in Lakewood and in other cases. I mean, essentially arguing, although it says it less noisily now, you know, home rule justifies anything, you know, any inequality, that funding that 
differences don't necessarily translate to meaningful education differences. That reducing funding disparities is good enough, you don't have to eliminate them. That perfect equality of educational opportunity is not required. What's going on is good enough. Any steps in the direction is enough. The court should keep its hands off. Those are through lines. The state argued them. I was struck in at the beginning of Robinson, and it's still arguing variants on them. Actually, our next session is with uh, your good friend and mine, um, Larry Lesberg, who's going to talk about the Abbott II decision, which was the court's seminal ruling reviewing the findings of unconstitutional education in the urban districts. And we're going to go through the state's formulation of those very defenses in the in the context of the Abbott case. But it also reminds me of a of a, the court's am, am, ammunition in, in the Abbott Ford decision, which goes into what we're going to be talking about, which is one of the big remedial decisions where the court says it cannot avoid its constitutional responsibilities under the guise of local autonomy. So this notion of passing the buck down to the local school districts is a, a kind of in the state DNA. I think what you're saying, Paul, it's, it, what this points out is it's in the state DNA. Somehow it's in the water over there that if you drink the water in the state house or in the Department of Education, you're going to you're going to you're going to um, um, come up with that one. That's a that's a long yeah, no, there are, but but I, I knew more in a way or uh, the Abbott language was fresher in my mind than the Robinson language. And I went back and I said, well, they were arguing back in Robinson as well. So let's just sort of close out, Paul. Could you lead us into the next phase? As I mentioned, we're going to be talking about the Supreme Court's landmark ruling in the Abbott II ruling, which really found the public education law of 1975, which the Supreme Court in Robinson upheld, facially upheld. Abbott II found that very formula unconstitutional as applied to the urban districts across the state. And we're going to be talking about that. Lead us to what happened after the law passed. You had the court putting its foot down, closing the schools. The state reluctant, the legislature reluctantly under pressure coming up with the funding necessary through the enactment of the state's income tax, the first income tax that we still have. What happened then? What, what failed? What led us to Abbott? Well, let, let me say two things. One, one little historical footnote. Apparently, the state legislature had previously adopted a state income tax and then within a month repealed it unanimously. So uh, the court's uh, pressure did create the first workable and continuing income tax, but the state had the legislature itself had flirted with the idea previously. But back to Robinson. So uh, Robinson 5, I've reread the opinions and there were five or six of them. Uh, The court splintered up in all kinds of ways. And what was clear to me now and kind of dredged up my recollection of what happened at the time is that the justices, I believe, to a moral certainty, knew that the law wasn't really going to work out. It wasn't going to be constitutional as applied. Knew, in fact, that the criticisms of the law by the plaintiffs and the friends of the court were well taken and would pan out. But I think the court was just 
kind of up to its eyeballs in that case, you know, given how long Abbott's been alive as a separate case, it's remarkable because uh, in Robinson, the court managed through five years or five and a half years. In Abbott, what is it? It's uh, 40 years and counting. But in any event, I, that was my read, that the, the justices knew this wasn't going to make it, but just had to clear it off their decks. Um, and what they said was, rather than retaining jurisdiction of the case, they said, well, you know, go off, collect the data. If the data persuade you that you're right in your analysis, come back to us and we'll consider it. And actually, that's the reason Avid is Avid and not Robinson 7 through 30, that the court didn't want to retain jurisdiction. And what happened in the interim, and it was uh, about four years, is that Marilyn Moorhauser, your predecessor as director and my successor as director at the Education Law Center, did an amazing job of collecting data to document the inadequacies of the 1975 Act. And, and Abbott was the return to court that the members of the New Jersey Supreme Court said, if you collect the data and it proves out, come back. And Abbott uh, was the coming back. So in essence, was it that, to what extent did the court signal this? Was it the fact that these disparities in education funding levels because of over-reliance on the property tax between wealthier districts and poor districts, particularly urban districts, that the court, when it signed off on the Public Education Act of 1975 as facially unconstitutional, had an indication that those gaps, those disparities would not be remediated, even if the formula were fully funded. Is that, is that yeah, the... Absolutely. Absolutely. And if, and if you look, it's very instructive to look back at all the opinions in Robinson 5, the, the decision that upheld the facial constitutionality, because in a number of those decisions, the justice goes through meticulously, point by point, the 1975 Act and said, no, no, this doesn't cut it. This favors the wealthy districts. This doesn't help the poor districts enough. You know, they went through uh, minimum aid and transportation aid and teacher pension and annuity funds that actually were anti-equalizing. They weren't just unequalizing. They actually provided more state aid to wealthy districts. I mean, take teacher pension and annuity funds as an example. The more teachers you have per capita, the higher the salary schedule for teachers, the more money the state's going to pay to support the teacher pension and annuity fund. So the wealthier districts are actually getting per capita more state aid than the poor districts. So far from it equalizing, it worked against equalization. And that was true of a number of other components where the wealthier districts were drawing on state resources and taking away money from what could have been used to equalize the circumstances. So, so I think it, it's kind of written all over those opinions that this was a, a pretty deeply flawed statute. And, you know, it's 
one could play out mentally what might have happened if the court had bitten the bullet and said it's unconstitutional would the legislature have taken another five years to write a new law and then not funded it so whether it's good bad or indifferent we were left with the actual history which is that law went into effect and was proven in Abbott not to not to do the job the last question is so you had Four years after Robinson, the predictions that the formula would not address the fundamental disparities and gaps in education funding between rich and poor districts playing out in real time and being demonstrated by you know, actual data over those, over those years. And the decision was made to go back to court. Just to set us up for the beginnings of the discussion about the Abbott rulings, how did the Abbott uh, case, you know, you mentioned one difference between Abbott and Robinson, which was Robinson was facial challenge, I guess, to the constitutionality of the, or at least a, a ruling, facial ruling of unconstitutional education, as opposed to as an applied ruling. You know, can you tell us a little bit about the differences between the litigation that was filed in Robinson versus Abbott? What were the, what were the sort of key differences in your mind? Well, look, I, I think Robinson was very light on data. In fact, at one point during the oral argument before the Weintraub court, Weintraub said, you know, maybe this is not the right case to give content to the education clause of the New Jersey Constitution because the record is so limited. And whatever one thinks of Abbott, the record is hardly limited. I mean, the Marilyn Moorhauser's proof book, which I have on my shelf, is about uh, eight inches thick with uh, all of the evidence that had to be introduced, how it should be introduced, how it should tie into the legal theories. So Abbott was vastly more uh, detailed and thoughtful presentation. Robinson was kind of seat of the pants, you know, there's a there's an appealing theory, let's go in with uh, without much of a record and hope we can persuade the court. And, and, and what about the differences between the plaintiffs, right? So the, plaint, the plaintiff in Robinson was a, just the Jersey City public school kids, but the, but, it, but the court's ruling reached the entire funding formula writ large. Right. Um, but in Abbott, the plaintiffs were kids from some urban districts. So it was a and it was a class action. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, no, I, th I think part of the, uh, the structural point I was making before, which was that Avid was a much better developed, carefully developed, uh, detailed, data-driven case than Robinson, which really had a very sparse record. I mean, whatever record there was, was really produced by Ted Botter, the trial judge. It was there were a couple days, I think, of testimony, really a, a handful of days as compared to, to Abbott, where there was extended, what was it, 99 days before uh, Steve LaFell? Nine months. So, I mean, it's like day and night between the way those two cases were formulated and developed. All right. Well, I think we've uh, covered this amazing ground. I mean, Paul, I want to just thank you for, for just a wonderful explanation of this. I mean, these, and, and also 
bringing out these core finding rulings and principles that were articulated first in Robinson and how they're still operating today in the, in the current dynamics of trying to make sure that the right to education is fully effectuated by kids, especially kids in higher poverty districts and districts that are you know, segregated along racial lines and socioeconomic lines and so forth. So I want to thank you, Paul. So I want to thank you as well, Paul, for um, just being such an incredible champion uh, for so many years and for really paving a new path when it comes to the fight for equity. Um, it has made a huge difference uh, here in New Jersey for millions of children. So thank you so much for being such a wonderful champion and groundbreaker. Thank you. If I could add one thought, picking up on a, a thread from earlier about Donna Lieberman and her argument about why T&E education is the best possible education. And I think I said earlier that we didn't quite accomplish that in Robinson, but I thought we had come very close to accomplishing it in Abbott. And one bit of evidence that I think supports that, ironically, is the court's parity remedy that it ordered in Abbott when, yet again, the legislature wouldn't come up with uh, the goods. Because if you think about parity, what did they, the court do? It said, we're going to take what the highest wealth districts are spending on their own students. We'll require that as a basis or a floor for what the urban districts get. And they get on top of that what they need to meet the special educational needs of their students. So the court was saying, you know, we'll take what we, I think we'll accept as, as the basis, the funding basis for excellent education of the, the state's most advantaged kids. What are the high wealth districts choosing to spend on their own kids? And then we're gonna add to it additional amounts to meet special education needs of students in, in the poor urban districts. I mean, if anything adds up in my head, and you know, mathematically, to the best quality education, it's that remedy. As you point out, I think the groundwork for that was laid in Robinson and then built upon, obviously, in the trial of Abbott and in the, in the work that followed, which we're going to be talking about in the following session. So yeah, once no, again, it's... Paul, thank you so much. And, and again, I want to echo David's comment about you know, your tremendous contribution. It's un, unparalleled and un, I can't say enough about the contribution that you've personally made over these many, many years to the cause of educational equity, education justice in New Jersey and, and also across the nation. So thank you, Paul. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For more information about the Education Law Center, their wide-ranging work to protect the rights of children, and New Jersey's history of school funding litigation, please visit ELC's website at www.edlawcenter.org. For more information about Legal One, please visit our website at www.njpsa.org/legal1nj.